Welcome to the Commerce Tomorrow podcast. Your one stop to learn about the technology that's powering the future of commerce. Here are your hosts, Dirk and Kelly. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of the Commerce Tomorrow podcast. Actually, today we have a very special session, I would say. Uh, I would probably phrase it as the headless session, uh, <laughs> as we have uh, two great guests uh, with us here. So first, I need to introduce my co-host, Kelly. Hi, everybody. Hello. Hey, Kelly. Uh, it's uh, yeah, great. A long time that we haven't had a podcast together. Um, summer was longer this year than expected. And actually, we're in the same room. It's also <laughs> a very rare kind of thing. Normally, you sit uh, in Wisconsin. I'm sitting here in, in Munich. Um, but yeah, enough about us. Uh, let's uh, get to our guest. Uh, I'm uh, super happy um, that we have Matthew Bayer and Neha Sempat from uh, ContentStack joining us for this session. Hi. Hey there. Thank you for having us. Hi there. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for coming. Thanks. So, Neha, Matthew, um, before we start and get into Content Stack and the history and what uh, Headless DXP is all around, um, uh, would you mind introducing yourself uh, to the audience? Absolutely. Yes. My name is Neha Sampat. I'm the founder and CEO at Content Stack. And I'm Matthew Bayer. I'm the COO at Content Stack. Are you guys able to go through your personal backgrounds and how you got to founding Content Stack? Sure. Yeah, it actually kind of goes hand in hand with the company history, so I can I can dive into that, and I'll actually try to introduce Matthew in that process if that's okay. So, it, so going back to about fifteen years, I was my career was all in technology, but on the business side, and I've spent most of my time trying to build things inside large organizations. And in doing so, I came across the challenge of seeing that business and IT don't necessarily see eye to eye. And that's been increasing in rage <laughs> over the years. And so it's always been a passion of mine to try to bring the two sides of the business together where technology teams and business teams can actually work hand in hand. And so when I started the company originally, it was called Raw Engineering. And Raw Engineering was meant to be a company that helps those organizations to kind of adopt new and modern technologies, but do it in a way that's effective for both the business and, and technology teams. And in doing that, we helped brands build their first web applications, their first mobile applications, their first instances of adopting cloud. And this was you know, many years ago when cloud was still new and not necessarily native to a lot of organizations. And in doing that, we found and uncovered that there were several trends that were happening as companies were starting to embark on this modernization digital transformation journey. And one of those trends was essentially building mobile applications and figuring out how content would be applied in an omni-channel way because it was no longer just about the web, but it was about the web and mobile and smartwatches and jumbotrons and all kinds of other ways that content was starting to be consumed. And then the other side of the equation was that you were now having to integrate all these new SaaS technologies and API-based technologies, and there was no easy way to do that. So we also had a passion for helping organizations figure out how to do that integration. And so we essentially had this services organization called Raw Engineering. We built a product called Content Stack, which we'll talk more about today. And we built a product called Built.io, which was an integration platform. And iPaaS essentially integration platform as a service that allowed you to connect all of your different applications together and when the world of internet of things starting to transform also connecting to things and so we actually sold built.io about a year and a half ago to software ag 
and we spun content stack out of raw engineering. And so we finally got to the point where we have this product that we're super passionate about and that actually solves the problem for both business and IT inside large organizations that are trying to modernize their technology stacks. Great. And Matthew, how did you get to this point? So and Neha and I have been friends for, gosh, 20 years. We're, we're dating ourselves now. Um, and, you know, so she's a dear friend of mine. Uh, she's also a, a really inspiring leader. And we started our career together and, you know, watch each other grow. And um, we worked together at some of the some of the great companies of Silicon Valley, uh, most notably some microsystems, and then went our separate ways. We've always kept in touch. And so we've always had one or two passion projects on the side, whether it's um, <laughs> starting a a, a, a startup that uh, solves the parking problem in San Francisco or a wine business. We've always had the entrepreneurial bug together. And then when Neha invited me to join the journey, when uh, when she was trans transforming raw engineering into a product company, that was when we reconnected. So this is actually our third venture together. We worked together before on, uh, on Built.io that Neha just described. And I always saw content stack as being the big one, the big opportunity. It's just such a big space and it's just so ripe for disruption. And, um, you know, the, it's very rare that you end up finding both great, great technology and great, great people in the same room. You can find, you know, one or the other quite easily in Silicon Valley, but finding a true amazing team with a, a genuine culture and then this incredible technology was, was, um, uh, impossible to resist. So now I get to work with my my best friend with an amazing team on something that I believe in, and it's beginning to bear fruits. Yeah, I've spent some quality time with you two, and it's uh, it's great to see you two have such a, a good partnership. And you know, there's clearly a, an enormous amount of trust in that relationship, and I think it shows in your business decisions. And it's uh, it's really remarkable to see. I've, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it, and it's uh, it's really providing dividends to your business. So good to see there. Um, could you give us a, a quick snapshot on where Content Stack is in terms of uh, fundraising? Uh, congrats on your recent round, by the way. Um, maybe just give us a little bit uh, more background on your business right now. Sure. Yes. So we actually, as I mentioned, spun out of raw engineering on January 1st of 2018. So we're almost two years into the business. And we had the lucky head start of having already had the product in the market for a couple of years prior to that. So we spun off with customers and with a little bit of cash to help us grow the business. And then we spent a year and a half really focusing on, on that growth. And we finally closed a Series A round of $31.5 million a couple months ago, which has given us the opportunity to now focus on high scale growth and really thinking about where we're going to take the product and how we grow the demand in the market for the product. And that's been sort of our trajectory moving into the year 2020, essentially building up the sales team and ensuring that when people and organizations are deciding to modernize their technology stack, that they're hearing about us and thinking about us and we get a seat at the table to help them do that quickly. That's great. And um, I think I might have heard of the investor. Maybe you can say something about them. <laughs> sure. Yes. We um, we actually get to be siblings with Commerce Tools in that we also raised from Insight Partners. And we believe that they've got a vision uh, for this space. And it shows in, in the fact that they've invested in, in both of our teams. But essentially, we felt like they were a great multi-stage partner. They understood us. They understood the vision. They brought ideas and vision to the table as well. 
And so we're super excited to be on the journey alongside Insight. Absolutely. We also believe they are a great partner. So let's dive into your product. Um, let, let's start really at a very high altitude level. Um, maybe you can tell the audience what is a headless CMS, a headless DXP, and why is it rising so quickly? Sounds good. I'll, I'll take a stab at that. And, um, and then obviously, Neha, feel free to jump in. But I think I need to give credit where credit is due. Rumor has it, Dirk, that you invented the term headless. So uh, whether it's headless commerce or headless CMS we're talking about, I think credit to the name. I, I've yet to find an earlier an earlier mention. So thank you for naming something that is inherently a little, a little <laughs> complex. And thanks for pointing that out. Uh, I, I still uh, have the feeling that, yeah, may, maybe there was somebody earlier. There's no proof on that. But um, as long as uh, nobody raises their voice go. on that, <laughs> I think that's right. So thanks for that, Matthew. Um, so, so maybe let's start with the basics. So uh, most people know what a CMS is, right? We're, we're in that space. Um, it's software to manage digital content. And traditionally, that meant tr uh, digital content on the web. Now, content, you can think of it as having two parts. There's the, the body, um, basically what it is and the structure to support it. And then there's the head, which is what it looks like, kind of like a human. And traditional CMSs were built for a world that was dominated by the web, just the web. And the front end, i.e. the head, the presentation layer, and the back end, the application layer, and the, the content sets were all very tightly coupled, um, made a lot of sense because you tried to make things more efficient and get content out more quickly. The world obviously has changed a lot today. Um, there's not just the web. And so Content Stack takes a, a fundamentally very different approach. There is no front end that we prescribe. Um, it comes without assumptions about how and where your content will ultimately be and reach its audience. And so in a word, it's headless. And what it means is not that there's never a head and there's no presentation. It just means it separates the two concerns and the CMS delivers content via APIs. So it's decoupled, delivered via APIs, and that opens up a whole new world where you can do content management across any channel, not just the web also the web, but not just the web. And you have this single content hub that can basically serve all these digital channels, which can include mobile and smartwatches and digital billboards and some of the examples that Neha gave. And if you then think a little bit further, you know, delivering uh, what the industry is beginning to call customer experience, and that can include new media or new channels like AR and VR or bots or interactivity with your voice, all these modern digital experiences, they're still all driven by content, right? You still need a place where the content that powers this experience is held, is managed. And it just turns out that in this modern world, a traditional CMS is sort of the worst possible architecture to do that. Everything that was optimized for the web kind of breaks down when you have multiple channels. And when you go API first and headless, it's sort of the best way of doing it from an architectural perspective, at least so we believe. And uh, essentially what we're providing sort of in a nutshell is a, is a modern technology stack for your digital content across all of your digital channels. And that also leads to, you know, why we call content stack. It's a modern um, content stack. Why is it rising um, so quickly? <laughs> I think, um, you know, I think it's a lot of it's to do with, with our audiences, right? Audiences are paying attention on new channels. They have different expectations about the content they're consuming and how they're interacting with brands. So in, in many ways, it's a, an audience-driven need that vendors and brands are beginning to catch up to. I think it's funny. You could you could do a find and replace in that conversation and swap out uh, content for commerce. And I think 
you could have exactly made our business. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is why and, we're, we're so excited <laughs> with you guys. It's funny. Even, even the, the company name composition is, is kind of, uh, yeah. so it's not the same, but had a similar kind of approach. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we have, we have a problem. I'm, and I know you do as well. Um, the legacy CMS and DXP platforms out there added APIs and now they all go around claiming to support headless mode. Right, and we have the same problem on the commerce side. But you know, how, how is uh, how is that different from what you do? How do you differentiate, and what is real uh, headless versus the uh, the fake commerce <laughs> the fake, or the, the, fake, the fake headless? Yeah, so it's um, <laughs> the fake news. Yeah, it's actually very interesting. We we do get that question, of course. You know, it, um, a lot of vendors that two years ago said headless is never going to be a thing have now said, you know, we we invented headless. Here we have APIs and. We rarely get questions like that from um, developers. So developers who understand the technical differences generally figure this out really quickly, but we do get this question a, a lot from the business side. And so, so let me try and answer it in, in business terms. If you, a traditional CMS built the app first, right? They built the CMS and then they realized, okay, APIs are useful for getting content in and out. And they added those on. So it's like an API added um, model, which not to just call it an afterthought, but the result is that you have a set of APIs that maybe don't take full advantage of the product itself and the capabilities, and that very often aren't thoroughly tested. So as soon as you start using the APIs as a developer, you realize, oh, wait, this this feels like an afterthought. Um, it's different with Content Stack, where the APIs are created not after, but during the development. So any functionality that we build into the product, into the UI, you know, if there's a visual expression, at the same time as we're building that, we're building the API functional, uh, functionality. So there's nothing in the management console, nothing in the product UI, nothing in the backend that you can't address equally through the API. This forces our own developers to you know, design and use the APIs properly from the beginning and test them. And so you end up with a, more set, a set of more concrete and real-world APIs that are also tested. Um, I'll, I'll go a step further. It, it's not that hard to add APIs and um, handle delivery through APIs, right? Content delivery is one part of the concerns of a CMS. It's how do you get content to its places. The other part is content management. Um, adding APIs on, it's like uh, the metaphor we usually give is it's like trying to stick an electric battery into a diesel-powered car. Right. You can do it. And <laughs> That's a good analogy. We might can, have to copy that. Because at the end of it, you can call it an electric vehicle, right? You're not technically lying. There's a battery in there. There's electricity. But you're also completely missing the point. And, you know, more importantly, <laughs> as a customer, you're not really getting the benefits of having the APIs the same way. So with a more technical analogy, people often, you know, if they're far enough removed, get confused between the idea of cloud native and managed service. And those are very, very different, even though it feels like you know, on the, the one pager, they look very similar. So it is worth paying attention to um, the model that the vendor has has followed and when when APIs showed up. Um, the other point about content delivery, that it, there's not you know a lot of magic there, although with Content Stack, you do get a very tightly integrated CDN and some intelligent, intelligent caching. So that part is, is improved. But from a content management perspective, things get really interesting. And a lot of companies are now beginning to build their own products and you know the internal development API first. So now if you have a true API first CMS, you can actually integrate the CMS into your development pipeline um, you know, using the content management APIs. And that is something you can't fake, that, that you just can't get by getting a traditional CMS with APIs added. 
Absolutely. And once you have integrated that and you have then your API first stack um, across your whole organization and you use content stack here, you still need the head, right? So where's the head? Maybe you can explain that yes. to everybody. So um, there's always a head, even if the head is not visual, right? There can be, <laughs> there can be, content can end up on a web page. It can be in, um, in many, many different formats and, and forms. It can be in a mobile site or an app. It can be in game content or on a Jumbotron or a kiosk. So there's many, many, many heads and, you know, there's some industries that have maybe a, a, a preference, you know, retail customers will uh, moving towards kiosk and in-store experiences where content lives in, in, you know, interesting ways where it interacts with, with uh, consumers. It can come in the form of AR and VR and like we mentioned, even voice. So there doesn't always have to be a screen. Um, how you render and present that content depends ultimately on where it is being surfaced. And so you use a completely different technologies um, to optimize content for a mobile app, you know, than you would maybe for a traditional website, than you would for a kiosk. And that's the wonderful thing about being headless is there are no restriction about how your content can get, um, can get uh, presented and, and surfaced to the world. So ultimately you do end up with a head. Um, the head is something that developers create that is perfect and optimal for the, for the destination and then plug into content stack, which obviously provides all the hooks to make that very easy. Very good. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, another question that maybe you could help out with clarifying is how do you define a DXP? Right. And I, th I think there's a lot of um, industry analysts and other folks who are just kind of casually throwing that term around. Um, but could you define that term and, and how does content stack actually fit yes. in there? Um, Great question. So DXP stands for Digital Experience Platform. It's one of the many, many buzzwords that we like to throw around or analysts have given us um, kindly. It's very closely related to what um, to what a content management system does. In fact, if you look at the vendors that, are, that fall into categories, a lot of them come from the CMS space. And some might argue that the, the DXP and CMS boundaries are being blurred. But, but let's maybe just take a, a step back and talk about the term um, digital experience. It's a it's a very timely question, right? Because we're we're moving from a world where content used to be just like thrown out and presented on a billboard on a digital billboard, i.e., your your website, and those days are gone where that worked. Like content is now no longer effective if it's static and generic. It, it's it has to be in order to connect and be meaningful for an audience. It has to be personalized. It has to be interactive. It has to be you know, dynamic and reflect the what's happening right now. So there's real time, a real time aspect to it. And frankly, audiences expect to have an experience when they interact with a brand. And so the content is still at the core of that. Um, at the core of a DXP is what is done by content. However, the the way you consume it and the way you interact with it is much richer. Hence the move from content management to providing digital experiences. I actually just came back from the um the Gartner uh, conference uh, where they talk about the, the it's the application strategies and solutions summit so they talk about this a lot there and they unveil the latest definition and it's it's all about the composition of management of these digital experiences but they also acknowledge that at the heart of that at the core of it is still content 
Um, let's um, dig a little bit deeper here. There, there are a few customers, or not, not customers, sorry, a few companies um, that I would say that they try to, to put in the same kind of box and label that. Um, um, we, we could say they're competitors to yours to some degree, companies like Contentful, Ampliance and others. Can you explain how you differentiate to them and what your USPs are? I assume this is a question that you got ask a few times, hey, how do you differentiate between A or B or C? Um, we, we, we don't have to, to mention all these names? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think it, it comes down to why customers choose us. And that's where the core of our differentiation would come from. And when we win new customers, it's typically due to our enterprise product and the expertise that we bring. And it's, you know, essentially brands that are larger organizations, and they're looking to modernize their the way that they deliver digital content. It could be to employees, customers, users, fans, it really doesn't matter. They're just looking at modernizing the stack. So we kind of boil it down to four things and we call it the four E's at content stack. The first one is, is one that I alluded to earlier, which is equality. And equality is really about having equal attention to business users and technology users in the whole process of adopting content stacks. So that's everything from the way that we build the product and features and thinking about how we roll those out, the way that we train customers, the way that we work with both developers and business users to make their lives easier. Also the way that we sell. And what we find is that usually both parties are at the table in making a decision to adopt content stack. And we make sure that in the sales process, we're talking to both sides of the, of, of the world so that we bring them together. We bring them in harmony essentially. And that's when they decide to buy and then their propensity to buy goes up as a result of that. So that's, That's definitely one, it's equality. The second one is in our DNA, it's enterprise. And we really do have more of a focus on larger organizations and enterprises. And that's really just what we've been doing for many years over the course of our, our businesses. It's, it's who we are and it's what we know how to do really well. And what that really means and what it, how it shows up in the product is that we understand that enterprises are complicated and especially ones that have been around for many years, they've got a lot of data and systems and tools that may be disconnected. And we understand that. So we build the product in a way that it can work with enterprise needs and the complexity that, you know, that lives within those organizations. And that takes us essentially to the third E, which is extensibility and ecosystem. And this is really also tied back to understanding enterprises, but also understanding that as you're modernizing your approach, you really want to be able to work with all the latest and greatest tools, but Not everybody's on the same digital transformation journey. There's different stages of that. And so as you're adopting new technology, new tools and modernizing your stack, being able to easily integrate with all the new tools, but still have access to your old tools becomes super important. So working with partners like Commerce Tools to be able to extend the value of content stack to a commerce platform or to all the other tools that a business user or developer uses becomes an important part of the equation. And given that we've got background in having built an integration platform, this becomes a part of our DNA as well in the way that we think about building the product and making content stack extensible. And then finally, it's really just about the team and execution. That's the fourth E, and it's building scalable processes, thinking about the product in a scalable way, having built successful products in the past, we have a team that kind of knows how to do that well. And we think about sales efficiency, product delivery efficiency, scalability, and it's something that's also just a part of our, our thinking on a regular basis. And so that's really what we believe it boils down to and why customers choose to work with us over others. 
No, I really like that 4E concept. Um, so on the enterprise E, I guess, who are some of your flagship customers? Yeah, so some of our customers include, I mean, they're really across several verticals, which I think is really important to, to note as well. So Chase on the financial services side, Cisco in, uh, in, in terms of technology companies, Holiday Inn, Iceland Air in hospitality, the Miami Heat in sports and entertainment, um, Express in, in terms of retail, Riot Games for gaming, Shell in energy. And so it's, it's really a very horizontal play across many industries with a lot of large brands. Yeah, an impressive list of logos. So really, congrats, congrats on on that momentum and traction that you are having here. Um, one one question on customer acquisition as we're speaking about that. Um, one thing that that we see uh, in in the commerce space uh, from time to time is that within the selection process, um, some companies still use an I would say old school RFP process, and these old school RFPs are uh, still favoring I would say monolithic solutions over cloud native API. Um, and, and, and as um, already also Matthew said, um, um, for, for developers, um, they, they get it automatically. They, they touch the product and know what's going on. But uh, in a business-led RFP, sometimes this is a little bit more, more tricky. And I assume from time to time, you might run into the same kind of challenges. Um, so how do you get around that? So I think that's a very astute observation that we share. Um, I think we're seeing you know a good mix of RFP-driven projects and non-RFP-driven projects, but generally the more conservative the industry or the more mission-critical the use case, you know, it's 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 actually still likely that we um, that we come across an RFP. Typically, we we're always ready for one, um, no matter how old school they still seem, right? And in in some ways, it, we have observed a shift, and I think this is also where working with the analysts has proven really critical. Because you know the analysts provide a lot of guidance to vendors on how to structure an RFP and how to what questions to ask and how to evaluate vendors. And there's been a lot of education over the last year when it comes to headless technology. So just as enterprises still go to the gardeners and the foresters to do their research and and learn how to craft their RFPs and evaluate them, we're we're now seeing that those analysts are you know they've been around CMS forever, but they're also getting a good handle on headless. And they, you know, we're lucky in that they also know content stack very well. So, you know, if you go to um, Gartner or their peer review sites, you know, we, 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 we're right at the top of, of the list in terms of customer satisfaction and enterprise use cases. So it's really easy for them to also feel, um, them being the analysts, feel confident uh, recommending us or talking about us. And that we found helps also very much with RFPs. If you can get an analyst to, um, to back up your story, that's very, very powerful. And then I do think that, you know, the other observation is 18 months ago, headless was on zero RFPs. Um, now I'd say, you know, headless and API first considerations are in well over half. So there is a change and things are becoming, becoming more mainstream. Whenever there's a developer who's part of the RFP process, it's more likely than not to come up because as we've touched on a couple of times, they, they understand the significance and importance and, They're usually quite excited when they realize that headless is um, is an option for them. Um, a, a common question that people have with with anything headless is how do and where do business users preview pages? Um, you know, those old school CMSs they had built in; it was right physically there, right? And you could see exactly what the page was going to look like. 
Um, and I, I know um, you, you don't just do web, but you know clearly web is still pretty popular out there. So how how do you offer preview for business users? That's a really good question. I think I think it touches on kind of this fundamental shift in how people think when they're modernizing their technology stack and what they're used to versus where they're headed. And there's this moment at which there's this kind of a click that happens in the sales process where you know the aha moment of oh I don't actually need WYSIWYG anymore because I can do whatever I want. And it's it's kind of you know, our job to take them on that journey. And, you know, WYSIWYG is the what you see, what you get editor. And there are companies that will build sort of a, a layer on top of content stack to allow certain users to still have that preview environment. Uh, we've built in ways that you can preview from a, a website and jump right into the right part of content stack to be able to do the editing that you require. But it's more about understanding that you don't necessarily need to do it the way that you did before. And that there's new ways to adopt technology tying into tools that you are used to using. And there's potentially better ways in order to adopt and integrate with the technology and content that you want to put out without necessarily requiring the same type of preview that you're used to. And so it's kind of a journey that we go on with our prospects. And there are business users that will always push for a preview. And we do things within the product to enable that. And usually that's done in a custom way, depending on what the customer is looking for and what you know, what the head of the end user goal is. Yeah, and we see the same thing. You know, a, a lot of times it's not about a direct mapping from an old school approach to this next generation approach. It's changing how you think, and uh, if if you're adopting this new style, it's a <laughs> it's a different paradigm, and the the same things don't hold true anymore. Um, so on that topic. Um, where do you see custom front ends versus front end as a service offerings like Mobify and Frontastic, for example? Um, great, great question. Speaking of you know new trends, and uh, we obviously as a as a headless CMS generally take an agnostic point of view, but I'll, I'll dive a little deeper into some of our thoughts. Um, it, of, everything depends on the use case, right? And and there's the other truism is that. When you make a choice to adopt something as a service, whether it's a front end as a service or something else, you're always, um, hopefully knowingly, um, but you're trading a degree of ownership and flexibility for convenience and speed and business results, right? You move to the cloud, you give up your servers and you don't host them anymore. You don't configure them anymore, but you can do things faster and cheaper in the cloud that way. So it's the same, the same with the front end. Um, What's really cool about front end as a service is, you know, they don't, they don't compile and deploy the website. Um, and they also, you know, they, they just take care of a bunch of concerns that you may not consider, um, the core of your business. They do introduce another dependency, of course. So the product team needs to understand that and they should look at the vendor landscape. There's again, different vendors and different solutions and different, um, different languages. There's, you know, lots of differences that a developer can, can zoom in on. And there's also a matter of trust, right? You, you're essentially trusting your chosen vendor to make decisions on your behalf about, you know, browser support and just um, simple things that really have a deep impact on whether you as a company can reach your intended audience. Uh, some of the difference you can look at, you know, Mobify, as an example, runs on React, which is one of the options out there. And, um, and whether that's good or bad really depends on the use case and whether you have the developer expertise at hand. But it is something that, you know, is worth noting. And in all of this, 
custom frontends are always going to be more difficult to create and manage. So frontend as a service does offer this really interesting, uh, I won't call it a shortcut, I don't want to trivialize it, but maybe acceleration to um, business results. Regarding the custom front ends, for those who build it themselves, um, what are some popular front end stacks and frameworks that you are currently yes, seeing? Um, the builders, we we, <laughs> we have a bunch of them at <laughs> content stack. You know, the, the developers always love building. And so you asked about popular front end stacks. So maybe let's look at what popular means today, right? JavaScript is probably the most popular language. I saw a, a survey recently where Python is number two and Java is number three, and there's still a great .NET developer ecosystem. So many developers are still using things like Visual Studio Code. And it's, um, I would say where we're seeing all the action right now is around Jamstack. That's like one area that is just red hot. It's popping up everywhere um, in enterprises. There's a, a very active developer community around that. You basically, uh, the, the, the value there is you learn one language, right? Your JavaScript, um, you use it for the front end and back end. And there are so many appealing things about Jamstack as a whole, including better security and faster performance and you know you can you can you can to pause quick could you define that a little bit better for our listeners define what oh jamstack, jamstack. okay so uh, i can't take credit for the uh, for the naming once again somebody smarter than me uh, came up with the name <laughs> it's uh, javascript uh, apis and markup so there's a few different concepts that are brought together um, there's a very very good article written by um uh, netlify's founder who uh, actually i think is credited with the with the term And so, you know, JavaScript is sort of the, the core of that universe for us as well. Um, interesting fact, content stack, the app is actually written in JavaScript in, in Node. But, um, but we're seeing there's just a lot of innovation and conversations and developer enthusiasm, which typically then, you know, results in adoption across uh, businesses too. Um, maybe a few other things, you know, we're seeing... We're seeing the rise of static site generators. And, you know, if you, if you subscribe to the notion that large, expensive, somewhat esoteric web servers are a pain to manage, then static is a really attractive um, proposition. And whether you use Gatsby, which is based on uh, React or Next or Nuxt or Hugo, there's a lot going on right now in that, um, in that realm. Yeah, we're seeing Gatsby, Gatsby specifically is, yeah, just is, everywhere if, these days. If, if we're extending the analogy of being red hot on fire, Gatsby is it. Um, and they actually go beyond <laughs> static sites, right? So people think about them as maybe a static site generator initially, but it's, it's blogs, it's e-commerce, it's like full-blown dynamic apps. So there's a lot you can do. Um, likewise, you know, uh, we've seen our customers use Gatsby and Nux and other things to launch really dynamic experiences that include booking and reservation apps and e-commerce sites and rich media. So on the flip side, it's, it's also a very easy way to get started, right? If you The most easy stack I can think of for um, a site is, you know, probably goes something like this, powered by Gatsby, hosted on Netlify and connected to content stack. Um, and, and you're done, right? That, that's as simple as it get, and gets. And we have, from a, from a content stack perspective, we have, you know, a starter package for Gatsby. We make it super simple to get up and running. And so we're seeing a lot more of that on, on our side as well. Yeah, and what's good is it, it's not just the you know the handful of hipsters out there in San Francisco or Berlin who are doing that. It's you know it's real enterprises, right? The first of, of your four E's, right? Yep. It's a real it's real enterprises are doing this today, and that's it's great to see that, and it's great to see that these big organizations no longer have to choose a uh, you know one of the big legacy vendors out there who I I will not name. <laughs> 
you know, they can, they can pick these best of breed, smaller vendors like us. So that's great. Um, you're betting big on GraphQL. I see, right. I, I see it all over your documentation. I've seen you do some thought leadership on it. Um, why and uh, what type of GraphQL support do you offer? Great, great question. Um, yes, we are betting big on GraphQL. We think it's, um, it's the best things in sliced bread. We, uh, we, we like a lot of things about it. We like the performance implications. We like, um, the sort of enhanced ability to introspect the schema. Um, it's really particularly useful for, um, times when your content model gets more complex. And that is something that headless CMS is actually proliferating and makes it makes it attractive for a developer to to get more sophisticated and graphql provides a, a much more economic and ergonomic way for developers to work with data so i think that's the that's the top line bottom line um, that said you know we're trying to be very thoughtful in our approach because again our customers are enterprises so we we want to show them the latest and greatest but we also want to be give them something they can build a mission critical use case on so we're really watching in partnership with our customers and prospects what enterprises are doing, how they're adopting it, how the use cases are evolving. We um, we already support today, uh, a, a, you know, what I would call a rich and comprehensive library of, of operators. So as a developer, you can write queries, actually complex queries. All of that is CDN backed, so you've got scalability and performance. And you know, the what we've seen from there is that the initial uptake was was really immediate. Um, we've actually seen not just individual developers play with it, but actually very large enterprise customers and retailers use it in, in production. So that's an indication to us that we're, we're heading in the right direction, that GraphQL is gaining, you know, really critical traction. So we're, we're planning to make some more very big moves early in 2020. So, but we'll come back when we have that. We just had our 2020 product planning session and we asked our heads of customer success for Europe and the U.S., what percent of uh, customers were doing it uh, were using GraphQL. And in the U.S., in the past nine months of our enterprise customers, 95% are doing GraphQL. Oh, wow. And in Europe, it's more than 50. Oh, wow. So we see it absolutely everywhere. And, um, and I agree with your assessment that, uh, that it's big and it's, it's getting bigger. That's a great data point. Yeah. So we're almost getting to the end of this episode, but I have one last question to both of you. Um, what's next for, for you and Content Stack uh, looking into 2020 as we are getting to the end of this year? So, you know, we just closed our, our funding round a couple months ago, and that was super exciting because it actually gives us the ability to execute on a lot of the other ideas that have been in the back of our minds and really thinking about growth. And of course, future plans are always about growth. But what's interesting is we've got an incredible customer base. They're actually pretty fanatical and very positive about us. But we're not the most recognized brand in the content management space. So in the short term, you know, really just getting the name out there, making sure that when there are opportunities to help organizations accelerate their business, that they're thinking about us and they're thinking about how to incorporate content stack into their plans in modernizing their technology stack. So really a lot about go-to-market and focusing on getting into the minds and hearts of the people that we want to partner with and working with partners like Commerce Tools and others to accelerate just the voice in the industry and making sure that people understand that headless or API first is the way of the future. That's really where we're going to be focused in the short term and essentially continuing to work with our ecosystem 
um, and and grow uh, grow our partnerships um, across the board. Sounds like a busy 2020. <laughs> uh, Matthew, any anything to add from I mean, your I side? Think Neha said it really well. I, I would double down on on both points she made. Certainly, in terms of our own growth, right? We we launched our European presence, both in terms of uh, an office presence and a data center um, or you know, a, a, an actual instance of our product. So global expansion um, is, is a big part of where we're headed as as a company. But I actually believe that we stand for something bigger or maybe we're part of something bigger, which is this new architecture, this new philosophy and finding like-minded companies like commerce tools that share our beliefs and, um, you know, and really offer more than just a better product and a modern architecture. It's just like a fundamentally different way to, to, to building your technology stack around content and commerce is incredibly powerful. And I think for the first time in maybe 20 years or 30 years, a, a real alternative over the old suite model where I go to a single vendor and I buy everything from them, whether it's the best or not, doesn't matter. Right now we're able to do something where we really can offer together as an ecosystem, the best in each category to customers. And that's a very attractive proposition. So building that out and telling that story and, and, and finding our, um, our, our friends and families, family members, uh, not just in the inside for, um, portfolio, of course, but beyond that share, share that, um, that outlook, I think, is going to be a big part of our, our 2020 journey. Yeah, I love your tagline of stacks, not sweets. <laughs> right. It's a better way. That's perfect. Perfect. So I think that's it. Um, yeah, uh, we, we wish you a great 2020, right? So um, all the success and, and uh, fun uh, uh, while being on that journey um, that, that, yeah, you, you will uh, most likely get. So Uh, we appreciated having you on our episode. It was really a great conversation. Um, I hope everybody who was listening uh, enjoyed it as much as, as we do. Um, Nehar, Matthew, um, thanks for, for being our guest. And uh, yeah, now we wish you great holidays, uh, Merry Christmas, and a good start into 2020. Thank you, guys. Happy holidays to you and happy 2020. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks.